the absolute priority is to make sure that you look like you're in control. You don't want to be perceived as weak on immigration because they're terrified that if they look like they're soft, there'll be all these stories in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and so on. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. It's a bit like a car crash you can't look away from. The UK Home Office has more stories of dysfunction and unintentional cruelty, sometimes intentional cruelty, than any institution I've encountered in my journalistic career. You have to ask, what is going on in one of Britain's largest ministries that it would just keep making headlines for various scandals, for failing to follow its own rules to abide by even the standards and goals that it set for itself? There was the Windrush scandal, of course, and we'll get to that. There's the Home Secretary who was found to have broken the ministerial code for bullying her staff, but wasn't fired. Recently, there was confusing post-Brexit travel rules and EU citizens unnecessarily sent immigration detention on arrival in the country. There was COVID spreading through derelict barracks used to house detained migrants. And on and on and on from big scandals that cost people lives to the everyday frustrating interactions you've often heard on this podcast. How can one institution be so universally criticized, not just by the immigrants and citizens who at one point or another must use its services, but by all those who encounter it, whether lawyers, judges, activists, journalists, or even those who work there? Daniel Trilling, a journalist who has been covering immigration for a decade, asked exactly that. He spent six months interviewing dozens of current and former staffers at the Home Office, people who work opposite them, and even several former Home Secretaries themselves to understand the culture of that most peculiar of British institutions. He wrote it all up in an excellent piece for The Guardian that I recommend you read even before listening, and it's in the show notes. I apologize to listeners outside the UK, but like I said, I can't look away. And frankly, by looking at how Britain considers immigration, you'll see a lot of parallel with politics in the US and France and Australia, wherever you are. Daniel and I talked about our attitudes to immigration, relationships between government and the judiciary, government and the media, citizens and the state, and why the way that we talk about immigration is really barely more than 20 years old. Oh, and because you don't listen to the very end, I'm going to tell you now, Borderline is a lot more than just this podcast. If you go to borderlinepod.com, you'll find a newsletter and you'll also find plenty of stories that just aren't in audio form. This week, especially if you're interested in the UK home office, I wrote up several stories about what's going on there. I looked at the data, the quarterly data that the home office just released to look at what is the reality of immigration in the UK as opposed to the headlines that you might be seeing. And I also looked at issue of European citizens turned away at the border since January, since Brexit. And it's really striking which Europeans, and you can guess, are in fact being turned away. So check that out. It's at borderlinepod.com. And please sign up for the newsletter because that helps me stay in touch with you, know who's listening, know who's reading, and that way you won't miss a single bit of content from Borderline. Thank you. Now, here's my conversation, truly, with Daniel Trailing. You've written this fascinating long read in The Guardian about the Home Office. And I was curious what brought you to write about that particular office and its culture. And what was your, your process getting into that? So I've 
been a journalist for almost almost 15 years now and for the last 10 years as a writer one of my main focuses has been on on different aspects of migration something that's been quite a constant over the last 10 years has been a general sense of frustration or even puzzlement from people that encounter Britain's ministry responsible for for immigration control the home office at, at the way it behaves so that would be a kind of common feeling you pick up not only from migrants who who encounter the system in various ways but lawyers and campaigners and people giving advice and other journalists sharing this feeling of surely they can't behave this way or why did why do they behave in a seemingly nonsensical or dysfunctional way the minister in charge of the home office at the moment the home secretary priti patel is someone who stands out for a very hardline approach to immigration control, but has also made headlines in the last year or two for her personal style. You know, somebody that I interviewed for my piece who'd previously worked with her told me her approach is to look at any any given situation and say, what's the toughest thing that anyone could possibly do or say in this situation? And then she'll do that. I suppose there's a kind of personal political story there at the top of the Home Office right now. But I think what, what's interesting about it is, although Patel might be seen as an extreme actually it's an intensification of these longer term trends that have been underway for years and years and so I just set about trying to make contact with people who who either currently work at the home office or had previously worked at the home office at all levels of the organization from from the ministers and senior civil servants at the top down to frontline staff who actually have to deal with people daily or or carry out policies that they're told to carry out and and also people who encountered the system from the other side individuals who had to deal with the home office or lawyers who've had to face them in court and so on the idea was to give people a to make it historical i went and tried to contact people that had been involved at relevant points in the department's history f- over the last 20 to 25 years the reason for that time period being the fact that it's it's only really in the last two decades or so that the sort of architecture of immigration control that the UK now has was was assembled, basically. I suppose the, the easiest way to put this is how Nick Pearce, who was an advisor to a, a home secretary during the Labour government of Tony Blair in the early 2000s, put it to me, which was historically the UK was a country where immigration control happened almost entirely at the physical frontiers. So at ports and airports, the physical borders, you would have people checking the identity of people entering the UK and determining whether they had the right to enter or not. But once people were in the country, there was very little internal policing of immigration that was done historically. But that completely changed over the last two decades. And so I suppose that was the historical frame that I wanted to give the piece because a lot of the, depends on your perspective, obviously, but what I would call the horror stories that emerge from the Home Office to do with people being mistreated, people struggling with a bureaucracy that seems completely set up to frustrate them at every level. All of that is to do with this internal policing of migration. So the Windrush scandal, to take that example, it was all about people who lived in the UK often for many decades, suddenly finding that they were blocked from having a job or opening a bank account or accessing the the welfare benefit system. So this was nothing to do with physically crossing borders. It was all about these 
this kind of internal border system that the UK now has, but actually is a is a really recent innovation. And so I suppose that was part of the motivation for the piece was to say, well, hey, there's this thing all around us that we take for granted in in British society, but actually it's really new. Much of it didn't exist 30 years ago, but now we treat it as a fact of life. But actually it's new and it was built by people who made decisions about how to build it, who who are still around. And you can go back to and ask, well, why did you do that? Why did you decide to build the system in this way? So why did they? How did this evolution happen from, as you mentioned, the 90s where immigration detention, for instance, barely exists and and controls are mainly at the borders to the situation that we know today with with the hostile environment and the very hostile rhetoric that we're we're hearing? Yeah, well, I... I mean, I think there's a there's a global context to this, first of all, in that from the 1990s onwards, the, the sort of global patterns of migration began to change. The proportion of international migrants globally has stayed relatively steady since the 1960s or something. But the big change that sort of happened after the end of the Cold War was that the, the sort of direction of migration began to change and I think that actually as the world became more unequal you had more people choosing wealthy western countries as destination the pattern of people going from low-income countries to higher-income countries has become much more pronounced and so in one sense Britain has been doing what every other rich country in the world or rich region has been doing which is it's been responding to more migration from outside and deciding it needs to manage and police that with greater degrees of control than before there's something like i don't know eight at last count around 80 or 90 border fences and walls established in different bits of the world today like these physical defenses whereas in, in in the early nineties, there were there were sort of ten to fifteen. So there's been this big growth in actual physical border security, and most of it is at the edges of the rich world. But the the thing that's accompanied that physical security is the growth of much more sophisticated systems for internally policing immigration. So it's not a phenomenon confined to Britain itself. I think the thing that makes Britain a little different, perhaps, to some other places, is the fact that the British state historically has tended to avoid the measures for monitoring internal populations that other countries have gone for. So the big thing in the UK is that we've never had ID cards. Obviously, Britain has had all sorts of ways of policing particular populations, not least colonial populations during the height of the British Empire or populations within the UK that it regards perhaps as a bit suspect or or, or in need of control. But there's been this idea that the British state leaves its citizens alone to, you know, enjoy their their English liberties and so on. And so that contradiction with wanting to be able to control and police and manage immigration has just become more and more pronounced over the last few decades because there's been this huge political pressure to... I mean, at the most basic level, just to be able to say how many immigrants of which sort are in the country and where and who they are. And that's actually not a function that the British state historically has been that well set up to do with populations in the UK. So what you end up having set up is a kind of parallel system just for immigrants with 
biometric visas initially, various forms of ID cards for asylum seekers and other kinds of immigrants, people who've been given leave to remain and so on, who, who are being monitored in a way that the native born UK citizen population is not. But the other really important aspect of that system, I think, is that all of that has been done in an extremely under-resourced way. And this is something I tried to show in my description of the Home Office in the piece. It's a kind of parallel state in a way. The Home Office's immigration functions aren't just about checking people's ID and processing visas, but it runs prisons, it runs its own police force. For asylum seekers, it runs essentially a parallel welfare state with with a parallel system of benefits, homes for people to live, you know, housing system, that kind of thing. But all of that is on a very small budget in Whitehall terms. The whole thing gets a budget of about three billion a year, which if that was a government department of its own, it, it would be right down near the near the bottom of the list of departmental budgets, but it's dealing with this huge, huge task. And at the same time, and I think this is this is really what came through in the accounts of people that I spoke to about how the system was built. Although politicians at every stage of its development would say the idea of this system was to set up something that was firm but fair, that facilitates the kind of immigration the British state would like and keeps out the people that the state would like to keep out the kind of overriding mood to it all and the overriding ethos that filters through the entire system is it's actually all about hostility you know that sort of anyone asking something of the system is automatically treated as suspect or bogus and until proved otherwise I think and I think that's something that you could see just becoming stronger and stronger over the the last couple of decades as more power was given to the the system but also as the politics around it the, the politics of immigration became more contentious and more hostile in general so so what is it like then uh, working inside the home office how much of it is hostility how much of it is incompetence underfunding understaffed overwhelmed and and what is it like for a junior caseworker in, in Croydon who sees I don't know how many asylum uh, cases every week. Yeah, so I think it's useful to think of there being three levels to the Home Office and and how it deals with immigration. You've got the kind of at the top, most senior level, you've got the ministers and the senior civil servants in the department. Obviously, they're setting overall policy and budgets and so on. But in a way, they're trying to translate political pressures into departmental policy and structures and so on and so on then you've got the, the the kind of middle level the sort of middle ranking civil servants in Westminster whose job it is to turn that into concrete practical everyday policies so if a minister or the civil service boss of the department says right we need some policies for reducing this type of migration it will be those middle ranking civil servants that actually go and look at right how do you actually achieve this and so on and then come up with proposals And then the third level is what's called the operational side of of the Home Office. So that would be everything from people who are actually patrolling Britain's borders to, as you mentioned, caseworkers who are just processing applications from individuals who, who want to visit the UK or want to live in the UK or are living in the UK and want to formalize their right to be here in one way or another. The thing about that operational level is it's it's huge. The Home Office employs something like 32,000 civil servants directly, 
almost all of them work in that operational bit of the home office. So, you know, I think when when one says civil servant, the images of a kind of elite Westminster official, but actually, for the most part, civil servants are clerical and managerial staff, in, in, at least in the home office. And I think the factors that produce the kind of dysfunctional behaviour that, that you, you repeatedly see, certainly they are to do with resources. The best way to describe the sort of modern business of immigration control is that although the images of it are all about borders and territory and what's going on in the English Channel or what's going on in the Mediterranean. And obviously, I mean, these things are really important in their own right, but they're actually a small part of what modern border control is all about. And I, th- I, I think it's it's actually much more about states managing the, the, the sort of individual biographical details of, of millions of people or tens of thousands of people, depending on the context. And the kind of real heart of that work is the bureaucratic processing of people's details and the success or failure of particular policies very often comes down to how efficiently an institution does that and how efficiently it keeps records and one constant factor in the history of the home office is that it has done that very badly on occasions often because they haven't given enough resources to do the job things like lacking the time to consider an application properly and having to just apply sets of pro forma responses to it rather than actually take the time to examine the details of a particular case and exercise discretion and so on but i think equally important is the fact that the the sort of logic of the system the messages coming from the people at the top whether that was direct instructions to staff or just what politicians are saying to the media was your job is really to be finding ways to keep people out. So I think although the resource question is really important, it's as much to do with the political priorities that are being set for staff as it is for anything else. I think what, so talking to people who, who've experienced the system, particularly people who've had experiences of systems in other countries, that's one of the key frustrations that that sort of emerges is that when you have to deal with home office bureaucracy, it's just unnecessarily difficult and hostile towards you. If you've got a difficulty with your application of one sort or another, it's really hard to speak to someone. You can't just phone someone up and say, look, there's been a mistake. How can we get this resolved? And I've had you know, numerous people say to me, well, this is it's so bizarre because when I, when I, I don't know, in the Netherlands, for example, when I need to get my residence permit, it's just a simple, quick bureaucratic process that, you know, takes half an hour at the local, you know, government office or whatever, and you just pay a nominal fee to cover the cost of the administration and then it's done. Whereas an equivalent process in the UK would involve these huge application forms where you've got to prove all sorts of details about your life going back years and years the fees are often exorbitant i mean that's another this is a good example of where a political priority determines the behavior of the bureaucracy the home office is legally mandated to make a profit on fees for citizenship and visa applications to put in an application for citizenship in the uk you know if you want to become a naturalized british citizen before 2003 cost uh, zero pounds after 2003, it cost something like £200. And as of the last couple of years, it cost £2,300 or something. That's, 
I think quite emblematic of how the system is set up to treat people that come and ask things of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, there's been you know many stories on this podcast where it seems like it's the default answer is no, and then you start the fight, and then and then often the eventual answer is going to be yes because the courts will be on your side because it's so obviously should be yes, but not until you've had a fight and spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy getting to that. Yes. Yeah. And the, the role of the courts in the legal system is, is, is a really important part of understanding how this all works. Again, going back to that idea of this being a dysfunctional system that baffles the people that have to deal with it daily. One of the kind of most striking things that I've observed about it is just how often the Home Office is told by courts that it's not following its own rules, you know, which considering not least this is the UK's Department of Law and Order, the Home Office also is in charge of policing and counter-terrorism and security and so on. But but particularly on, on Im- areas of immigration, there's a constant stream of court decisions that tell the Home Office, you are breaking your own laws that you're setting up. And that ranges from yeah, individual applications for citizenship or asylum and so on to very frequent decisions about structural things that the Home Office is doing wrongly. I, I would say there's often there's at least one a week. In the last week before we're doing this interview, there was a court that said that the Home Office was wrong to have housed asylum seekers in these disused military barracks in the way that it did because it was told that it wouldn't be COVID safe. And they went ahead, they, they not only ignored the wider rules on that, but their own assessment, I think, told them it wouldn't be safe and they went ahead and did it. And that's a kind of classic bit of Home Office logic, I think, which is we'll do this. Eventually, it will be found to have been unlawful. But by that time, either we'll have done it or at least, and this is something that several interviews said to me, it's the kind of, it, it's how it looks to the, the outside world that's really important. So even if it's a court that says we've done something wrong the important thing is that we can say well that's the court that decided that not us we've been trying our best to exert control over immigration and our hands are tied by this court decision in a way that's like the central political but also psychological dynamic of the home office that i observed and 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 that people who who have been deeply involved within it described to me which is that i think Politically, because of the wider politics of immigration in the UK over the last couple of decades, there's been this overriding sense that whatever your other objectives are, the, the, the absolute priority is to make sure that you look like you're in control. You know, you don't want to be perceived as weak on immigration. You don't want to lay yourself open to attacks from the right wing press that you are too soft on border control, that you're letting in too many immigrants of one kind or another and so on. And that priority kind of has come to crowd out anything else. And mm that's why they're so reliant on things ending up in court. It's also a sort of inertia that allows a slow-moving and unresponsive bureaucracy to work as a, f- a form of immigration control in its own right. Because if, you're, if, if your system is by default saying no to people, a certain proportion of those people are going to give up and move elsewhere and, and, and not try and fight it. So it has, it has that sort of effect. But also when people do fight it, 
it becomes this thing about the courts rather than the home office. And as as a, a recently retired judge who, who's worked in immigration tribunals put it to me, it's it's that they have to be seen to be saying no, because they're terrified that if they look like they're soft, there'll be all these stories in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and so on. But I think also the role of the courts and the role of the law is also really Im- important for understanding how things have changed politically in the last couple of years, because I think out of that dynamic, something much more much more sinister and potentially threatening to the UK's political system overall has started to emerge. It's not only located in the Home Office. I think a lot of it's to do with Brexit and the ways that various groups of people then tried to challenge the Brexit process, often using the court system. But the current government has kind of set itself against the judiciary to a certain extent. So there's been, you know, noises made about unelected judges. I'm sure, well, those listeners of yours familiar with UK politics will remember that infamous enemies of the people front page headline on the Daily Mail a few years ago that was about senior judges it was aimed at because they'd made a decision about a case relating to Brexit that the mail was displeased with. The current government's response to this kind of growing right-wing populist backlash against the legal system has been to threaten to reduce the power of the courts and to reduce the ability of ordinary people to seek legal redress through courts and I think at the moment there's a very concerning effort to take away people's rights Mm -hmm. and and as often with attacks on the rule of law the the kind of the thin end of the wedge is is starting with migrants or starting with any kind of vulnerable population and you touched on something interesting as well when you were talking about the home office's relationship with the media is this notion of policy being made not not to govern, not to use the policy, but to announce the policy, right? And that the, the communication around it is almost more important than what the policy actually does, right? Yeah, I think it's kind of going back to that idea of being seen to be in control. You could point to a kind of list of policy initiatives going back at least 15 years, uh, if not longer, that they they purport to do one thing or another and actually turn out not to have achieved the thing they say they're going to achieve, but were very effective at giving the impression of control or the impression of effectiveness in the media. Mm-hmm. You know, not just in the way that newspapers or other media outlets would would cover things the Home Office did, but actually the way the Home Office itself presents what it does through its media and communications teams. Somebody who'd worked on the comms team for quite a number of years under both Labour and Conservative-led governments described to me how increasingly there was an effort to get images of immigration raids out into the media, you know, both by inviting journalists along, but using things like the Home Office Twitter account to, or, to tweet photographs or, or to put out press releases. Priti um, Patel and her uh, Home Secretary windbreaker at an uh, immigration rate recently. Yeah, exactly. But that, I mean, that's a classic example of where that's actually something that the Home Office has been doing for years, but Patel has just taken it that step further. So, you know, the Home Office will have been putting out images of immigration raids or police raids on suspected smuggling gangs, as I think I think the recent images were of. But Patel has put herself right into the frame there with her own branded Home Secretary jacket and so on. 
Yeah. Speaking of that top sort of political layer that you were mentioning before, you spoke to a, a few previous home secretaries, and there was a quote that just absolutely leapt at me from the former labor home secretary, Jackie Smith, who, speaking of the way things are seen in the media, said immigration is a good thing for the country, but you can't sell that to the public. And I thought it was such an admission of defeat in a way for a progressive to to say something like that. I mean, has the left just even given up on, on making the case for immigration? Is being home secretary necessarily being tough and restrictive on immigration? Yeah, that I mean, that quote's a funny one because it's one that a lot of people have picked up on and have been, yeah, a lot of people have said, like yourself, they found it jaw-dropping. And what's odd is that it almost didn't make it into the piece. So I had, I had huge amounts of material that available to me to use in the piece pages and pages of quotes from from different people and a lot of the work in writing the piece was between me and my editor working out which are the things that are going to feel new or surprising to readers and which are the things that are you know okay people know that we don't need to hear that again in detail and so on and the quote from Jackie Smith was one that I'd looked at I've you know looked at dozens of times while writing the piece and the kind of gone, well obviously everyone knows that's what new labor were like and it was only when my editor saw it and said my god it's like the bit in a movie where the criminal reveals their master plan kind of thing <laughs> you know she literally just said that which is what the kind of accusation that people had thrown at the left during that period you know the, the labor government during that period so it was i guess quite striking for particularly for people who who weren't immersed in it to see it articulated in such a direct way but yeah i mean the sort of history to that is that labor were in government from 1997 to 2010 and that project of getting into government and then and then winning re-election was achieved by rebranding the Labour Party as New Labour, which involved, I suppose, moving it away from its socialist and trade union roots somewhat, kind of accepting the the logic of Thatcherism, the idea that sort of that market values should should be allowed this this sort of dominant role in in driving the economy and society, and that the state should avoid intervening too much and should should farm out public services to to private providers and so on. I suppose the idea was that you do this and you accept that logic and then a Labour government will come in and be able to re redistribute a bit of wealth and make things fairer than than the Conservatives, than the centre-right would would do in, this, in, in the same position. The way they sought to retain political legitimacy for doing that was by making sure that they were always covering their right flank, particularly with the media. And that involved this strategy that I think came from the Clinton administration in the US in the 90s called triangulation that you know if you were being attacked on immigration from the right for not being tough enough on immigration and at the same time your critics from the left were saying you were being too tough and inhumane you would sort of try and find the middle position that would would um, co-opt everything and, and maintain consent and so on but really for the I suppose reasons I touched on earlier, it was always the, the sort of right wing side of that that dominated, partly because I think Britain's media historically has been so heavily dominated by right wing press that, that that has had a huge effect on shaping and directing discourse around things like immigration, but also led to this particularly weird way of behaving politically for Labour politicians, which was that you would 
have a particular policy objective in mind, but then you would have your idea about how you had to talk about that publicly, and they could often be quite different. So I suppose the the sort of ultimate example of that is is EU free movement. In 2004, the EU was enlarged and countries in Central and Eastern Europe joined and were able to take part in the existing freedom of movement arrangements. And the, the, the Labour government at the time chose not to impose any temporary restrictions on people coming to the UK from Poland and from other countries, as it could have chosen to do at that point under under EU rules. Large numbers of people took up that right of free movement. And to a certain extent, the government wanted that to happen because it saw it as economically beneficial. But because of the discourse around immigration and the need to keep the right on side, it wouldn't openly say that. What it would do instead was say, well, we keep getting attacked on immigration, but we we want to facilitate immigration. So what we'll do is we'll just keep trying to redirect people's attention to the bits of immigration that we can control. If people are unhappy about the level of immigration, we'll seek to reassure them by saying, yes, but we're being really tough on on the bad migrants, the people that we don't want. What I tried to show in the piece was that although the, the way the Home Office behaves these days is very heavily blamed on, blamed or credited, depending on whether you like it or not, obviously, on the role of Theresa May, the Conservative Home Secretary who was was in charge of the Home Office from 2010 to 2016, who took a much more sort of hardline approach to immigration control. A lot of the tools that she had at her disposal were put in place by Labour immediately before she arrived. What would it take to to change that culture? I mean, is, is the Home Office salvageable, you know, provided that we even had a government in place that was interested in in changing this this behavior. Yeah, so that I mean that's obviously a question that's been asked repeatedly over the years. And there's kind of one answer to that that's I suppose to do with with sort of resources and planning. So there's an argument that well at least you could give people the proper resources to carry out their jobs. But obviously if the job is set as being hostile to immigrants, then what they then do more efficiently may well be <laughs> behaving in a really unpleasant way towards people. If that's if that's what the politicians want people to do, then that's what they're going to be told to do with whatever level of resources are available. There's a structural answer to the question, which is something that has been tried in the past, that it's actually to do with the way the Home Office is structured. So until 2006, the Home Office was a much larger government department that was also in charge of bits of the criminal justice system as well. So it also ran prisons and it ran the probation service and so on. And when it was hit by this scandal over the failure to consider foreign nationals who'd committed certain serious crimes for deportation, the argument then was, oh, it's inefficient because it's so large and it needs to be split in two. And that's what happened after 2006. So prisons and probation and so on were given to a newly created Ministry of Justice. But actually, the effect that that had was to make the Home Office much more focused simply on security, although it was still in charge of all of these different things to do with immigration control, where as a department, increasingly, it was set up as the Department of Preventing Things, as a few people put it to me, you know, it's there to stop crime, stop terrorism, and well, on immigration, what is it there to do? Is it there to stop immigration? Not really. I mean, that's a certain amount of its activity, but a lot of what it does is actually 
at least in theory, supposed to facilitate immigration, processing people's visa applications and so on. So structurally, if you have all those functions sat within a wider department that is just there to say no, that has an effect. So there's an argument that perhaps immigration should be taken out of home office control or at least split off into a separate agency as it was for a few years around 2010. But I think those questions about resources and about structure don't really sort of answer the third question, which is the trickiest. It comes back to the politics. And if you have people in charge of a department believing that what the public wants, or at least what bits of the press want, is for you to be tough and hardline then your department is going to reflect that in the way it behaves in the, in the culture of um, staff, I think. And so that kind of comes back to something that is a lot harder to argue, which is why is there this idea in Britain that you need to behave this way to people who come and ask things of the system? And I think immigrants are a, a group of people who get really hit with that, but it's it's not only restricted to immigration. I think the way that welfare policy has developed particularly in the last decade has been increasingly dominated by this attitude that if you're asking something of the state then you're sort of already at fault and I think that that's something that has developed in the wake of austerity policies this kind of rolling back of the the welfare state which has required this big ideological push that it's somehow wrong and shameful to be asking state support in one way or another but I think it's also to do with wider social attitudes towards immigration in Britain which are actually really complex it's not a case of just there being this overwhelming hostility particularly in recent years immigration as a political issue in the polling that's done has really dropped down the agenda I mean in terms of public attitudes now seems to be a time when people have got more open and welcoming attitudes to immigration in the UK than ever before, perhaps because for those people inclined towards hostility, they feel that Brexit has achieved what they wanted, at least for now. But then that seems to have had no knock-on effect to the way that the institutions work. There's still this belief that you have to just be as tough as possible and as hostile as possible. And I mean, yeah, this isn't really something I had space to go into in the piece, but I think there's something psychological about that that goes beyond the reach of everyday politics it's a question that people in Britain really need to be asking one another how we manage to get into this situation where even it's almost and the bit that interests me the most it's not where someone who's got a hostile attitude to immigration personally but it's going back to that Jackie Smith quote that you rose I think there's this real cultural thing particularly with people in public positions in Britain it's like well I don't think this you and I well we're liberal we're tolerant but you know there's people out there who don't like it and we need to behave in a certain way to keep them happy which I just think that's that's a kind of massive national neurosis and it's I don't know there's so many other things tied up in that it's to do with Britain being a very elitist country but wanting to think that it isn't and the, the way that the elites relate to the general population and the preconceived ideas they have about the general population and who has access to power and so on good luck untangling all that I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we probably don't have the the space in this episode to do a Britain's therapy uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a good place to to end on I think if not a if not a completely hopeful one thank you so much this was really interesting oh you're welcome thank you 
Thank you to Daniel Trilling for his time, his expertise, and his wonderful reporting. If you enjoyed this conversation, please go to borderlinepod.com, sign up for the newsletter, and check out all the other content I have about what's going on at the home office and broader conversations about living a global lives, about immigration, foreign affairs, all these nerdy things that I love and that are part of our lives as global citizens. You can also sign up for the newsletter, make sure that you don't miss a single thing, and you can choose to support Borderline. This is 100% supported by readers and listeners. I do this pretty much full-time and for no money. So if you appreciate this work and want to see it continue, please consider becoming a member. I hang out with members once a week. There's a call on Wednesday where we all get to share our stories and you can ask any questions about the podcast. You also receive a longer version of this podcast. This very conversation, for instance, is available uh, in full, uncut, unedited, about 50 minutes long for members of Borderline. So that's it. That's my pitch. Please go to borderlinepod.com and consider subscribing. And in any case, sign up for the newsletter. That's free and that helps us stay in touch. That's it for this week. This podcast is going bi-weekly. It allows me more time to keep a really high bar on the quality of the podcast, but also to create more content for the site, for the newsletter, to write more, which as much as I love podcasting is my first love. And so you'll see a lot more at borderlinepod.com. Another reason to sign up for the newsletter and to check the website. So I'll talk to you on this podcast in two weeks. Unless I change my mind and I just really want to talk to you sooner. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music is by Afshane. Borderline is a one-name bridge production. <laughs>